Welcome to our Glendale Baptist Church Bible study. Uh, as we prepare, we're going to continue our studies in the book of Revelation, but I do want to say at the outset, uh, we are, appreciate all of those who are not a part of the Glendale Church who have uh, still been able to benefit from our Bible studies. So we uh, thank you for uh, joining in and we pray that uh, they would continue to be a uh, source of encouragement and uh, helpful for you. Uh, but tonight or today, uh, we will look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it and then we'll kind of uh, set the tone for how we want to approach uh, this chapter or at least this portion of it. Uh, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not uh, deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who or who had, had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. May God richly bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, I must uh, agree with Dennis Johnson when he says that the first six verses of, of Revelation chapter 20 are probably the most controversial in the book of Revelation itself. And not only is it controversial, but one of the reasons it is controversial is because of the issue of the thousand years. And what is meant by uh, the thousand years um, has been debated among Christians for centuries. And like I said, the primary point of contention or the source of controversy here is how we view these thousand years. And obviously, uh, even though there are two visions that are set forth in these six verses, the thousand years carry over. They are mentioned in verse one uh, or verse two, and then in verses four through six there is a reference to the thousand years. So really, these two visions revolves around how the thousand years are interpreted. And there are two main issues here, and let me, I wanna be clear up front that we'll probably spend a few weeks just in these first six verses uh, because we're gonna do a few things before we try to unpack the imagery here in the visions. But there are two, um, two main issues here. 
uh, number one, especially as it relates to the thousand years. One, is this a literal thousand years? Is it a literal thousand years? And secondly, when does this thousand year period begin? Those are really the two, the two issues. And I think everything else, uh, all of the particulars in both parts of the vision are, are really based around those, those issues. Um, when does the thousand year period begin? And is it a thousand years? Now understand that uh, the Latin word for thousand is millennium. And for this reason, um, in Christian circles, we talk about the millennium or millennial views. So what I wanna do is before we try to unpack the content of the two visions in these first six verses, is look at the three dominant millennial views that have been presented uh, or held within Christian ranks for a number for, for centuries, uh, for the most part. There there are some that are newer, but uh, we'll look at the three dominant millennial views within the ranks of the Christian faith, and. Um, and, and it's uh, now that will cause us to interact with some of the content of the chapter, but it won't be until we give uh, an overview and then some observations on the three dominant views that we will then dive into the content. Now, the first one, which is probably the most commonly held millennial view among contemporary Christians, and especially here in the West, is what is called the pre-millennial view. The pre-millennial view, holding in mind that millennial means a thousand years. Now, in this interpretation, chapters 19 and 20 <clears throat> um, represent the chronological order in which they will occur. So chapters 19 and 20 in the premillennial view, and this is an essential part of their interpretation. In the premillennial view, chapters 19 and 20 represent the chronological order in which those events will occur. And since, Jesus, since John sees Jesus' return in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, with the white horse, so since he sees him returning in chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 21, and defeating the beast uh, in the battle of Armageddon, therefore... In chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is seen to, uh, what, the way the premillennial view holds it, is that Jesus now binds this, uh, the beast that he has defeated in chapter 19, and he binds him for a thousand years. Premillennialists believe that the final battle and the second coming of Christ 
occur before the thousand year reign. So let's kind of go back over that for a moment. They see chapters 19 and 20, the events that are recorded in chapters 19 and 20 as occurring in chronological order. So since Jesus comes on the white horse in chapter 19 verses 11 through 21 and defeats his enemy, defeats the beast, then what is seen in chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 is Jesus now, now that he has defeated the beast, that he is portrayed as now binding Satan for a period of a thousand years. Now some within the, and, and, and therefore the thousand years begins um, or before the second coming of Christ. So they don't see this as the second coming. Uh, so now some within this camp think that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. And we want to be, and I want to be careful here because there are variations in each of the positions that we're going to be looking at. And everyone that would claim to be a premillennialist do not hold to all of the, the same points. So some within the premillennial camp would say that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. Others would consider it as being symbolic. And thousand years would be symbolic of a long or an extended period of time. Um, they would see it as uh, scripture says that a thousand years is like a day unto God and a day is like a thousand years. So they don't see it as necessarily literal, but rather they do see, uh, some in, in that camp would see it as being symbolic. In this view, Christ will reign on the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand year period. Okay, so the end of the age what we would call the second coming of Christ is seen to be, uh, because it's premillennial, that Jesus returns in some sort of way before this thousand year period, but he doesn't return in consummation. So he will return to the earth and physically reign from Jerusalem for a thousand year period. Now, also contained within this view is the idea that the church would have been raptured away after a three and a half year period of tribulation. We touched on some portions of scripture in the past where um, those who would hold this view would see the church as being raptured away. Uh, places like Revelation, or that deals with the tribulation, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 3, and then also chapter 12, verse 14. And they see that three and a half year period of uh, tribulation as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks. 
and that's seen in Daniel 7, verse 25, and Daniel chapter 12, verses, uh, or verse 7. Also in this view, and the only place where you get a sense of, um, of rapture, but also in this view, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, refers to this pre-thousand-year return of Christ. Now, just for context, I want to read uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul's writings to that church concerning uh, the second coming of Christ. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses uh, 7, or actually, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll begin actually in verse 6. Since indeed Christ considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well, uh, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven um, with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And elsewhere, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul talks about um, when Christ uh, will return, that uh, we, those who are alive, he says, you know, don't, don't sorrow as those who are without grief, uh, because we know that our hope is that when Christ returns, those who are alive will rise to meet him, and those who are dead will, uh, will also be raised. Well, th those who are alive will join him in the air. And somehow this has been interpreted as the church being secretly, all of those who are genuine believers will be secretly taken away from the earth. And this has been, this has been a cottage industry for a lot of uh, prophecy teachers, that there will be this rapturing away and the, the reason we, we mention these two places here, that Christ will come in judgment, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, and then er, elsewhere where he says that we will, who, those who are alive will meet him in the air, is because all of this in the premillennial view takes place before the thousand years. So everything else that, that flows from uh, John's visions here uh, in uh, Revelation 20 all of these events will take place, that Christ will come and I guess we could say secretly, and he will reign from the earth for a period of a thousand years, but the church has already been raptured, and when he returns in this to reign from the earth, then he will bring with him the saints as we have been raptured, and, and it's at that point that we will reign over the earth. And there are other supporting verses uh, for this. For instance, when Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, and he admonishes the Corinthians for judging or uh, allowing their cases to be taken to the, the, the courts, Christians suing each other. And then he makes this statement, we will, rule, we will judge the earth. And so they kind of fit that in to this thousand year period. But in any event, Believers who have been raptured will return with Christ, and here's the thing, in sin-free, curse-free bodies. 
So the idea with this view is that we will, we have been raptured away and all of the things that take place during the great tribulation, we will be raptured away uh, during that period. So all of the things that take place in the tribulation will not be experienced by Christians and Christ will return to the earth and govern the earth from Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years. And when he comes to judge the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years, all of those who have been raptured, meaning all Christians, will return with him. And we will share in his rule and his reign. Now, as I said, this is a summary of the premillennial view. And we do allow for variations. So, you know, I don't want to, I'm not attempting to give an exhaustive treatment of what they believe. Uh, and let me mention here, and it's, I'll, I'll probably return to it over the next few uh, sessions. Um, a good friend, uh, Kim Riddlebar, who recently retired, by the way, blessings on him, uh, our longtime colleague from White Horse Inn, has written a very helpful book that really uh, defines these three positions that we're going to be looking at. Uh, it's called A Case for Amillennialism. Now, amillennialism is one of the views, uh, that is the third view that we will look at. But the reason I recommend Kim's book, I remember when he was putting it together, his notes are exhaustive, and he does the best treatment because he, like myself, came out of this premillennial dispensational framework. And he does the best treatment of this view outside of that camp. He's very fair and he's very exhaustive in his studies on it. So uh, I would certainly encourage A Case for Amillennialism by Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. Now, what I wanna do is um, pause here for a moment and we'll try to do it with each of the views, just kind of give some observations. And so what I want to do is give some, some observations on the premillennial view. So again, just so that we are clear, pre means before. So the understanding of this premillennial view is that Christ will return to the earth to judge uh, or to, to rule over the earth for a period of a thousand years, but this will be, his return is before the actual second coming. So the thousand years is before the consummation of the age. So let's look at a, at a few things here. The first observation is this. This interpretation of the thousand years requires a chronological sequence of chapters 19 and 20. And in doing so, this is not consistent with the content of these chapters, nor is it consistent with the content of the book of Revelation, period. We've said this from the beginning and we've said it repeatedly, and we will, will continue to emphasize, and I'm gonna 
emphasized in a particular way later when we unpack the amillennial view, that a deeper dive into the book of Revelation or a reading of the book of Revelation that attempts to, to view it in a chronological order or uh, that the things that are recorded are recorded in a chronologic, the, the chronological sequence in which they will occur. If one attempts to do that, you're going to run into all kinds of mistakes. And you're going to have some, and, and that's going to be, that's true of this one. So if these events are set forth, if, if you, in order for this position to hold, these events set forth in chapters 19 and 20 have to occur in a chronological sequence. And if that doesn't happen, then you're going to have all kinds of problems. And one of the bigger problems is that a real understanding of the book of Revelation understands John's use of recapitulation. We've seen it with the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath, where a thing will be presented and the same event will be presented again, but it will be presented from a different vantage point. So recapitulation is the dominant motif by which uh, the content of the book of Revelation is presented. The order of events do not follow a particular chronology. And since the premillennial view is so dependent on chronology or sequence, I think that's a flaw in that, in, in that, um, that, that model. A second thing, because the overwhelming, because of the overwhelming influence of dispensationalism on American evangelicalism over the last 150 years or so, variations of this interpretation is the most common, and especially as it relates to a secret rapture of the church. So let me flesh that out a little bit. Dispensationalism is a system of understanding the scriptures uh, through the lens of what they call the seven dispensations. It is relatively new to Christianity. It actually has its genesis in the 19th century. Uh, Charles Nelson Darby and uh, C.I. Schofield, uh, these are the framers. Uh, well, we talk about the Schofield Bible, but it was really Char uh, John Nelson Darby who was the founder of what we would call dispensationalism. And it grew in conjunction with the Second, Second Great Awakening, the revival period of the Second Great Awakening. And his understanding is that... Uh, Redemptive history unfolds in seven distinctive ages or dispensations. So there are seven distinct periods of time. I'm not going to get into what those seven dispensations are, but within it, they view Israel in a particular way and the church in a particular way. But so it's it's got some, and, and when we say Israel in a particular way, that God's intent was to save a people, to establish a people which becomes the nation of Israel. 
His intention was to save them. And then if they sinned or if they violated his covenant, then the church, including Gentiles, would be essentially plan B. So the intention was to save a people, national Israel, and when they fail to keep the covenants, then God works in a plan B. So it's, it's fraught with all sorts of problems. But even among American evangelicals who do not hold to all seven of the dispensations, one of the things that does resonate from dispensational theology among many Christians, doesn't matter the denomination or your theological persuasion, have been convinced of this secret rapture. I mean, I've heard it from Presbyterians. I've heard it from all sorts of, of, of believers who would otherwise disagree with many of the tenets that are held by dispensationalism as a whole. So it is an assumption. It is a, an, an assumed biblical doctrine, the whole idea of a secret rapture. And because that's so baked into our thinking, there have been verses that have absolutely nothing to do with the second coming of Christ that has been forced into this model. And I say this because I know that in, in pushing back against uh, this, this premillennial view uh, here of, of, of Revelation 20, it's going to go against the grain of what most of us have, have understood about Scripture, uh, myself included. As I mentioned, uh, Kim Riddlebarger, his book is the result of him growing up in dispensational thinking. And so dispensationalism, and especially the view of the thousand years and the secret rapture and the church returning with Christ for this thousand year reign, doesn't matter what the rest of your theology may be, that is going to resonate with a lot of people. Here's the third thing. The very notion of Jesus reigning on earth with, with sin and death still occurring, which is what this view holds, that Jesus will reign from Jerusalem and all of the events that are recorded in verses 3 through 6 will occur as he is reigning on the earth, which includes death. Uh, Dennis Johnson makes the point that in the uh, premillennial view, they hold that you will live longer, but you will still die. But the point is, it is the whole idea of Jesus reigning on the earth with sin and death still occurring is antithetical to the overarching message of the New Testament uh, in terms of what he has already accomplished by his death, uh, by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So this would make Jesus an earthly ruler. So if you take the literal thousand-year position that Jesus is the, is the earthly ruler and people are still dying and there's still, um, there's still sin in the earth. That, I, that idea alone is just antithetical 
to everything else that we know about uh, what, what Paul and other New Testament writers say that has been accomplished by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The fourth thing that I want to point out is that this view minimizes the fact and the essence of Christ's present reign. This view of, of the thousand years minimizes the, the fact and the essence of Christ's present reign. And as we noted early on in our studies here in the book of Revelation, Christ's present rule and reign is the very cornerstone of, of Revelations, of the book of Revelation, of the message of Revelation in terms of its hope and its comfort. So long before or, or before John is shown the content of the seven seals, the first thing that he sees is Christ seated on the throne, ruling over all of the kings of the earth. And in addition to that, John speaks definitively of what has been accomplished for the people of God. That he has redeemed us by his blood. He has made us priests of our God. And he he reigns. He, we are we we rule, we reign with him. We are seated with him. And so, having shown us Christ as being the ruler over the kings of the earth, and we as being his redeemed possession, then John says, "And he is coming again." And even again, before he gets into the seven seals. John looks into the churches. He is he's given a tour through the seven churches of Asia Minor, and he sees them with all of their failures and with all of their flaws, but it's Christ who's speaking to them. So he is presently ruling. He is the one, he, he who is over the, uh, the ruler of the kings of the earth is the one who walks among the seven churches. So the very idea of Christ's rule and reign is presently seems to be undermined by this idea that he will then come and he will reign from Jerusalem. And so in doing that, what they're doing is making his future reign from Jerusalem, the earth, as being greater than his present reign over all of the kings of the earth. And that's problematic to me. Which brings me to the fifth and final observation about this position. It presents Christ as one who, or it presents Christ's victory totally in future terms. It's as if we are waiting for him to defeat the devil. It's as if we are waiting for him to, to ascend to ultimate uh, lordship of the universe. And the message, not only of the book of, book of Revelation, as we indicated from chapter one with him seated and ruling over the kings of the earth, but this is the message of the New Testament in general. Let me read from Colossians. And this is, uh, to me, a, a very helpful passage 
to contextualize some of um, what I think needs to be refuted with this particular view. In um, Colossians chapter 2, and I'll begin with verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty, empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head and the rule of, of all, uh, he who is the head and of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with, with, uh, circumcision, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, past tense, the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. The point that Paul is making is that even though we don't see or personally experience all of the victory that has been accomplished, we know that we struggle with the flesh and we know that we struggle with the enemies of, of God. But the reality is Christ, by virtue of his death, burial and resurrection, has triumphed over the evil one. He has already triumphed over Satan. So the problem with the premillennial view is that we are waiting for we are waiting for an event that has already taken place. And so that's why it is important as you unpack the content of these various visions, it is important to weigh them in light of what has already been written in the New Testament concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because if the scripture says that he has been made, he has, he has conquered all spiritual authorities and powers, on the one hand, if that's what the scripture says, and then we read over here about this this thousand year period, whatever else is portrayed in the book of Revelation, it can't mean that Jesus is not presently reigning. So how the the, the problem with uh, there are many problems with the premillennial view, and that's one of the big ones. That it's as if we are waiting for him to be victorious over the enemies. One of the things that we've said throughout our period of studies in the book of Revelation is that what we are waiting for, what human history is moving towards is consummation. And that's a key word. Consummation means the completion of something. 
uh, it doesn't mean that, or, or the, the, the finishing of it, it doesn't mean that it hasn't occurred. The kingdom of Christ has already entered into time and space, and we will see its consummation with the renewal of the earth and the renewal of the people of God. So the dispensational view, and, and, and by the way, I should throw this out there as, as well. The dispensational view of Christ returning to the earth before the end of the age, before this thousand year period, and Christians returning with him, that is giving Christians a role in human history that is nowhere else seen in the scriptures. Because this again is going to be before the consummation, before the end of history. So the idea that we will reign, and we'll see how that bleeds over into the next position, but, but to, to the idea that Christians will somehow rule the earth with Christ from Jerusalem, I don't know how that would play out. If that means that we will all be in Jerusalem with him, or we will be designated in different parts of the world to rule the world with Christ. But Christ ruling over a temporal kingdom is simply inconsistent with Scripture. So I don't believe, uh, even though this is the, the, the baggage or uh, this is the, the background that uh, I grew up in and came to saving faith in, uh, I don't believe this is true. And I don't believe uh, this premillennial rapture view of the thousand years is either consistent with scripture or healthy for the Christian faith. I'm going to end there and um, we will take up in our next session uh, the post-millennial position. Let's close and ask God's blessings. Father, we do thank you again for our time of study. We pray that we have been clear and careful in handling the issues at hand. We know that your people, as you know them and as you have called them, have not always been in full agreement on a number of issues. We pray that what binds us, what makes us one, is our understanding of your grace through Christ. And so those, whatever our understanding, our understanding may be on different portions of Scripture, we pray that we are clear in our grasp that there is only one way of salvation, and that's through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we go through these different models, we do so because we know these are the things that have impacted our thinking over the years. So we pray that you would grant us clarity and uh, charity as we address those views that we may not hold. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We thank you for uh, making us a part of your family, and we pray that we would do all that is within us to strengthen and edify the portion of the vineyard in which you have called us to. Thank you again for your grace. Thank you for the knowledge of who Jesus is and even his present rule and reign over human history and the guardians of our faith. Thank you, Father, for Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.